I'm thankful to be with you this morning. We continue at our study through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we have this week, next week, and I am going to do the alternate ending. Uh, so we'll have two more weeks after this. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and we're going to bring in verses 14 through 15 as well as we look at the concept of forgiving us our debts. So let's look at the text this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there we have three requests concerning the greatness of God, the glory of God. As we address our Father in heaven, we want His name to be glorified, His name to be hallowed in our lives and in the world around us. We want His kingdom to come, and we want His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we turn to the next three requests that deal with our existence in this world as we seek to hallow the name of God. And last week we looked at verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this really should inform our prayers every time we pray. And then the three greatest needs that we have, a need for daily bread, which really is everything you need to exist in this world as you seek to glorify God, as you seek to live for Him and live out His commandments. All that you need, you ask God. So we need daily provision. We need forgiveness of sins. And we need to forgive others. We'll see that today. And then we need protection from the evil one. We need protection from sin. And so those are the three requests. Well, as we look at verses 14 and 15, they really um, play into verse 12. You'll see that, right? For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will will not forgive your sins. So we'll work through what Jesus is saying there as we look at the text. So when you think about what we're asked to pray, forgive us our debts, why do we need to be forgiven? That's the first question we're going to ask and answer. The second question we're going to ask and answer is, why do we need to forgive? And then the third question that we're going to ask and answer is, how can we forgive? So those are the three questions we're going to look at. Why do we need to forgive? I'm sorry, why do we need to be forgiven? Why do we need to forgive? And how can we forgive? We're going to look at those three aspects this morning. So let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom as we seek to understand His Word. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for this beautiful prayer, this pattern for prayer that Jesus gives us. Lord, I pray that our prayers would be informed by this prayer given to us by Jesus, that each day as we wake with life and breath given to us by you, Lord, that this prayer would come from our mouths. Father, we pray that we would be a praying people, Lord, that as we study this Lord's Prayer, that we would be encouraged to pray more because you, our loving Heavenly Father, ask us to pray. Now, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us today. Help us to understand why we need to be forgiven why we need to forgive others, and then how do we do that? How do we 
work through the process of forgiving others. Father, please work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first question is, why do we need to be forgiven? Why do we need to be forgiven? We see that in the text here. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, I grew up saying it uh, according to the Anglican common book of prayer version, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. They mean the same thing, but I think it's important and it's interesting that the NIV uses the word debts. So when I think of debt, I usually think of what? You think of money, right? How many of us couldn't use that big sack of money at the beginning of the year? That would be a nice thing. When we look at that concept of debt, what we're looking at is, is to owe somebody. It is uh, a loan that you've taken out. It's a debt that you owe. It's sums or it's, it's a rent that you owe. That's what it means. And so we're going to focus for a moment on that concept of owing. If you have a debt, then that means that you owe somebody something. So as we look at our lives spiritually and we think about what we may owe God, Jesus clearly informs us when asked, what is the most important commandment, what does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the first, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So where do we see a debt here? Where, where is that in this text? Well, you owe God love. The command is, love God with all that you are, your heart, your soul, your mind. Love Him with every fiber of your being. That is what you owe God. But you also, you also owe others. You owe others love as well. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, right? We understand that concept of loving your neighbor as yourself Please listen to me. What Jesus is saying is you, you love yourself well. You do a good job loving yourself. Now, I want you to love your neighbor just like you love yourself. The lie of the spirit of this age is that you need to learn how to love yourself. We mas- we've mastered that a long time ago, okay? All right, you owe love to God and you owe love to others. Paul talks about it like this. He says, let no debt He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has what? Has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever whatever other command there may be is summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, so the debt that we owe is, is, is loving God and loving others. That's the debt that we owe. But guess what the problem is? We have failed to do that. All sin is a failure to love God and love others as commanded. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, talks about misplaced affections. Where are your affections? When our affections are directed rightly towards God and towards others, then we're obeying Him. We're fulfilling the law. We are paying the debt that we owe. Our failure to love means that we are indebted to God, 
and we are indebted to others, right? I sinned. I didn't love you the way I should have loved you. I have a love debt to you. God, I didn't obey your command. I owe you a debt of love. So, so not loving as we ought is, is sin. A big fancy theological dictionary talks about the debt this way. It says, the debt with God is so great that no good deeds can offset it. We are totally dependent on the divine mercy. Remission is a matter of grace, but it imposes a corresponding obligation to love others. Refusal to do this brings with it severe judgment of God, right? So, so this theological dictionary that talks about this word debt clearly is t- taking, turning our minds towards Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant, the servant that was forgiven an amazing debt. There was a servant who owed his master more money than he could make in 20 lifetimes. That was the debt that he owed his master. And he begged his master for mercy, and his master showed him mercy. His master forgave that debt that he owed him. But then this servant went out and started extracting small, small debts from those who owed him money, showing that he didn't understand the mercy that he had received from his master. He wasn't forgiving as he had been forgiven. And it brought with it God's severe judgment. It brought with it the master's severe judgment. So, so our debt of love, our debt of love towards God and others, the fact that we have failed to love, the fact that we have sinned so greatly against God carries with it judgment. They might think, well, I, I do a pretty good job of loving people. I don't sin that much. You guys have heard me before say that the, you know, when I start calculating how much we actually sin, people minimize their sin. I, I, I think I shared this before. I was sharing the gospel one time over at the homes with this. It was kind of a really impromptu thing that happened that I was very thankful for. But I was trying to convey to this person I was sharing the gospel with that, that you need salvation. You need Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God is broken because of your sin, and that sin needs to be removed so that you can have that love relationship with God that He wants you to have. And then she was like, I, I, I don't sin. I was like, oh, Lord, you're going to have to help me here. But usually it's a, minimization, it's a minimalization of sin. People minimize it. And so I say, okay, conservative, let's, let's say that you only sin three times a day. Three times a day. And we'll say the first time you ever sinned was at the age of 10. And so if it's three times a day, 365 days a year, let's just round it off say that's a thousand sins a year. And you multiply that times, if you live to 80, 70 years, 70,000 sins. That's a huge sin debt. And scriptures tell us that each one of those sins carries with it the penalty of death. So how could you possibly overcome that sin debt? Well, praise God for Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead in your sins, when your love debt was so great that there was nothing you could do about it, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. Look at verse 14. Having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, you had a debt that you owe, that you could never pay. 
and it stood against you, and it condemned you. But when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, your debt was placed on Jesus Christ. And when he died, that debt was taken away. It was nailed to the cross. Praise God. And so when we look at our indebtedness, when we look at our need for forgiveness, salvation is realized when we recognize our indebtedness and turn in faith to the one who paid our debt on the cross. And that's Jesus Christ. Everybody needs forgiveness. Everybody has a debt with God, and that debt separates you from God. It destroys that love relationship that God wants to have with you. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take that debt away. Amen. So, as we look at this prayer, and Jesus says, and forgive our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors. Is that what he's saying here? I just conveyed to you this indebtedness that we all have. Well, Jesus is talking to his children now. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who have had that debt removed because they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So, as Jesus commands us to pray this prayer, he's talking to people who have had that debt removed. And so when we look at the Lord's Prayer, we need to understand uh, a theological concept. There is what we call uh, positional truth, and there's what we call experiential truth. Positionally, the, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in a position where your debt has been removed. You have been adopted into the family of God. You've been reconciled to God. Okay, you are in a position of righteousness. You are in Christ. That is your position. But in our experience, we have to live out our faith day by day. And guess what? We don't always love the way that we should, do we? We fail to love. We sin. And so because in our experience on a daily basis, Jesus says, I want you to come to me. I want you to ask for forgiveness because all of us know in our day-to-day relationships When we sin against somebody, there is a breach in that relationship. When we have a love debt with somebody, there is uh, the relationship isn't the way it should be. There's dysfunction, there's disharmony. And the same thing that can happen between you and God, okay, in your experiential relationship. Now, again, that positional truth, you are in Christ. You can never be more loved than you're loved by God in Christ. But in your experience, are there times when you can displease God with your behavior? Well, absolutely. Paul says, make it your ambition to know what pleases God. So if you need to make it your ambition to know what pleases God, then it means you might do things that displease God, meaning you don't love the way you should. And so there is disharmony in the relationship. And God wants us to walk with him closely. He knows that we function best when we walk closely with him in obedience, loving him and loving others as we've been called to love them. And so great theologian J.I. Packer says this, as we try to understand what Jesus is saying here, forgive us our debts, he says the answer lies in distinguishing between God as judge and God as father. You see, positionally, when we come to Christ, we come to God and we have this this love debt, the position that God has over us is judge, right? He's judging us. We're under condemnation because we have this love debt. That's our position. He's judge at that moment. But the moment we come in faith, trusting in the fact that Christ's death on the cross took that love debt away, the moment we come in faith, we move from God being our judge to God being our Father. Isn't that beautiful? Our Father in heaven. 
And so that's what J.I. Packer is saying here. The answer lies in distinguishing between God as judge and father, and between being a justified sinner, completely righteous, and an adopted son. The Lord's Prayer is the family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father. And though their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, now listen to me, there is nothing that is going to separate one of God's children from the love of God in Christ Jesus. None of your sins will ever separate you from God. There's no sin that you commit as God's children that's going to make you not his child. You've been adopted. Though our failures do not overthrow our justification, things will not be right between them and their father till they've said, you know, God, I'm sorry. God, I am sorry. And asked him to overlook the ways they have let him down. Now, don't get overthrown by let him down that sin. I mean, J.R. Packer is talking in familial terms. You're talking to your father. God, I've disappointed you. Father, I've let you down. I love you so much. I have failed you. I've sinned. Please forgive me. I want that relationship to be right. I want there to be harmony. I want there to be joy in that relationship. So, why do we need to come to God for daily forgiveness? On a daily basis, we fail to love God and love others as we're commanded, which, if left unconfessed, will rob us of the close fellowship God desires with us. We all know what it's like to have a breach and a relationship, and it's just, like, it's just not right. It's not right. I want it to be right. And God says, come to me and ask forgiveness, and it, and it will be right. Confession and forgiveness restore the vitality and joy of our salvation. Right? King David understood that, right? In Psalm 32, after, I think I used this last week or maybe a couple weeks ago. In Psalm 32, after David had committed this horrible sin, and he was living with this, this love debt between him and God, and him and Bathsheba, and him and the rest of the, the nation, there was this huge debt that he had. David was one of God's children when he committed that gross sin. And he says, when I kept silent, God, when I didn't come before you and say, forgive my debts, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And maybe one of you this morning is in that position when you're living in unconfessed sin. You have a love debt and you need to come before God. And friends, God is not standing as judge He's standing as Father this morning. He says, come to me. Just ask. Ask for forgiveness. David continues. He says, then I acknowledged my sin and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And when that that prayer is uttered, when you've confessed your sin, when you have agreed with God about your sin and how you've disappointed Him, how you failed Him, when you agree with God, that's confession, and God says, I forgive you. And a part of that agreement is repentance, okay? Repentance is a part of this. So, so David prays this prayer, and a part of this prayer was what he uttered 
In Psalm 51, he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, I remember when I first came to you as, my ch- as your child, and I was walking with you, and I was reading your word, and I was praying, and I was serving, and I was loving, and I, I was doing, it was great. I, I loved it, Father. And I committed that horrible sin, and I kept it unconfessed. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to do that, Father, and sustain me. You see, God wants to daily remove the weight of sin debt that we can accrue. You know, when Jesus was teaching about uh, serving in John chapter 13, right? Remember the story where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and Peter's like, oh no, you're not washing my feet. And, and Jesus says to Peter, says, well, you know, you're already clean, only your feet need to be washed. What do you mean by that? He meant that every day you need your feet washed. Every day, you need to experience that forgiveness through confession of sins. In 1 John, John talks about this. He says, if we claim to be without sin, right? That's what came to my mind when I was sharing the gospel with that person. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, right? If we confess our sins, God is faithful. He is just and He will forgive us our sins, and He will purify or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His Word is not in us. God is waiting every day for us to come to Him in confession. You don't need somebody else to confess to. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. You come to God through Jesus, confessing your sins, and He will purify you. He will clean you. Right, First John, he's talking about fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. And so Jesus begins by telling us to pray and forgive us our debts. Friends, I've just explained to you why we need to be forgiven. Why we need to be forgiven. That's the first question. Second question is this, why do we need to forgive, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, we need to forgive because Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, right? Of all the people in the world, we are the most forgiven because we've come to God through Christ. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world, We're the most forgiven, therefore we should be the most forgiving. So why should we forgive? Well, we're commanded to forgive, right? Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? So implicit in that is is the command, but other places in the New Testament, we see Paul, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Christians are the most forgiven, therefore we should be the most forgiving. In the sister letter that he wrote to the church at Colossae, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then over all these virtues, what? Put on love, right? It was a love debt. You're praying for forgiveness because you've, you've got a love debt, and that's forgiven. So 
Now go out there and put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So one, why are we supposed to forgive? Because we're commanded to. Secondly, we're supposed to forgive because it validates the forgiveness that we've received from our Father in heaven. When we forgive others, it validates the forgiveness that we have received from our Father in heaven. Right? So we read the text, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Well, that sound, kind of sounds like tit for tat, doesn't it? Well, if you forgive others, then you'll be forgiven. Like, or you might say it's a quid pro quo, right? Because we're bringing in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people, When they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That sounds like a quid pro quo, right? This for that. You forgive others, God forgives you. But if you don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive you. I had to laugh at this cartoon that kind of explains uh, this concept. The boy talking to his mother Don't you worry that withholding cookies until I clean up my room might constitute an illicit quid pro quo? You clean your room, I give you cookies. You don't clean your room, you don't get the cookies. Is that really what's happening here? Is that what Jesus is saying? If you don't forgive others' debts, then your debts won't be forgiven? Is that what he's saying here? I'm going to draw from somebody with a bigger brain than me, to explain this. And Al Mohler does such a good job here. He says, what Jesus is affirming in these words is that when we experience God's forgiveness, we are fundamentally transformed into forgiving people. Inherent in the new birth is a new heart. And that new heart is not filled with retaliation in self. No, that new heart is filled with what? forgiveness in others. We're fundamentally transformed on the inside. In other words, one way we can know we have experienced God's forgiveness is to see if we have become forgiving people. If you have a situation in your life and there's somebody has wronged you, somebody owes you a love debt, and you won't forgive them, you're determined you're not going to forgive them because they've multiplied that love debt many times, and you won't forgive them, what do you, what do you say? You're like the unmerciful servant in Luke chapter 18, not understanding how much you have been forgiven. That fundamental transformation has not occurred. Al Mohler says, it is simply impossible to experience the richness of God's grace and remain stubborn, obstinate, and cold-hearted person. Those who truly know the forgiveness of sins are forgiving towards others. This is a big deal. Jesus says, we'll see this in a few weeks, a few months probably, Matthew chapter 7. He says, look, in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. This is Matthew chapter 7. He's talking about the log and the speck. But the principle is this. The way you treat others, you will also be treated. The way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you have a heart of unforgiveness towards others then you will not receive forgiveness because your heart has not been fundamentally transformed by the new birth. You never had your debt canceled by Christ because you never came to Him in faith. 
Again, Matthew 18, at the end of this parable, the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Amazingly, when we pray this prayer, right, we're saying, God, please treat me as I treat other people. Please treat me as I treat other people. So that can go either way, right? In my heart, if I'm not going to forgive, you're going to treat me that way, God? Sounds like the golden rule to me. So in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So why should we forgive one? God commands us to forgive. Secondly, it validates our faith. And thirdly, it releases bitterness, opening up room for love. When you don't forgive, that person who has a love debt with you, they own you. You're upset with them. You're mad at them. You're not offering forgiveness. Bitterness is beginning to develop, and they own you. They're in your head. They're in your heart. It's bitterness. When you forgive, you release that bitterness, and you open up room for love, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, get rid of all bitterness, Paul says. Rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice, right? There's somebody who has wronged you. Somebody has a love debt with you. And you're angry about it. You're mad about it. You're slandering that person. You're gossiping against that person. And you want evil for that person. That's malice. Paul says, get rid of that. That bitterness is a state of mind that willfully holds on to angry feelings, i.e. unforgiveness, ready to take offense, able to break out in anger at every moment. One commentator says this, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping other people will die. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping other people will die. Well, when Paul tells us to get rid of all bitterness and rage and all those things there, verse 32, he completes the thought. He says, no, be kind and compassionate to one another. What? Forgiving one another just as Christ just as in Christ, God forgave you. You want to be like Christ? Be a forgiving person. We're most like Christ when we forgive. And so, love debt forgiven, how do you respond? Kindness and compassion. Releasing that bitterness. Once it's released, you can love the way that you're called to love. So, we've looked at two questions so far. Why do we need to be forgiven? Why do we need to forgive? And the third one is, how can we forgive? Because that's hard, right? It's pretty easy for me to stand up here and talk about forgiving, right? But that's, forgiving is hard. Giving forgiveness is difficult. Look how hard it was for God. He had to send His Son into the world and see His Son sacrificed on a cross. His life had to be given to usher in forgiveness. Forgiveness is not easy. It's costly. So how can we forgive? How do we do that? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that forgiveness is a decision. It is a decision, not a feeling. 
Feelings come. Feelings, as we, as we live the Christian, Christian life, right, it's, it's faith, obedience, feelings, right? You have faith. God says forgive. I'm going to forgive. That's obedience. And then God brings those feelings. Feelings are nice. I like feelings, but you can't act only on your feelings. Forgiveness is a decision. God had to decide that he was going to offer forgiveness to you and to me. He says, I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. It's a decision. God decided as far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove your transgressions. Psalm 130 If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, it's a question with the answer is, God, you've decided you're not going to keep a record of our sins. O Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. 1 Corinthians 13.5, love keeps no record of wrongs. It is a decision. I am not going to hold this against you. I have forgiven you because I've been forgiven in Christ Jesus As God has said, I will not keep that record. So as we understand that forgiveness is a decision, okay, there are four promises that you need to make. And this is from Ken Peace. This is not my original stuff right here. These four things is not my original stuff. Ken Peace, the peacemakers. There's four promises that you need to make as a person as you decide to forgive others. One, I will not dwell on this incident. I'm not going to meditate on the way that you've wronged me. I'm not going to sit there and continue to calculate the love debt that you owe me. I have told you I am forgiving you, so I'm not going to dwell on this. Secondly, I will not bring, this, bring up this incident against you and use it against you again. Right? How many times have we done that, right? You know you shouldn't. You're in a discussion with that person that you and your mind have forgiven. And, and the discussion progresses. And that thing that's kind of moved from your back pocket has moved to your front pocket. And then it moves to your mouth, right? And does that ever work out well? No, it doesn't work out well. So you're going to decide that I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to bring this incident up again. Thirdly, I will not talk to others about this incident, right? When Paul, we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Put, I want you to get rid of that anger, all that anger, that bitterness, that bitterness that results from you having an unforgiving heart. And then he talks about our mouth. He says, don't slander, don't gossip. I'm not going to talk about this incident with others. I'm going to decide, I'm going to purpose in my heart. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm not going to talk to others about it. And lastly, I will not let this hinder our personal relationship. And it's, that's not always so easy, right? Because there has to be a, a, a bridge of trust built, right? You can forgive somebody, and you can, the first three, you can decide in your heart, and you're going you're gonna, to, I'm not going to dwell on it, I'm not going to bring it up, I'm not going to you know, hold it against you. But the relationship has to be restored, friends, and this is the process. This is the hard part. Because there does need to be a bridge of trust built between you and that person, right? That love debt destroyed that bridge, especially if it's a repetitive love debt. So there's four promises. If we're going to forgive others, we have to make a decision. It's, it's you willing to do this. It's not a feeling. The second way we can work on forgiveness is, is that we realize that forgiveness imitates Christ's example. Forgiveness imitates Christ's example. 
You know, as we consider love debts, as we consider people sinning against us, we realize that people hurt people. People hurt people. Right? There's two ways that you can handle this being hurt. When somebody sins against you, when somebody has a love debt, there's one of two ways that you can handle it. One is the way of the world, and the second way is the way of Christ. The way of the world says, when I'm despised, I'm going to despise others. That's what I'm going to do. When I'm abused, I'm going to abuse others. When I'm lied to, I'm going to lie to others, right? It's an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's the way the world functions. You did this to me, I'm going to do this to you. That's the way of the world. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. One wise man said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and the whole world is eyeless and toothless, right? If everybody does that, everybody just tit for tat, I'm going to get you because you got me, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, and what's going to stop that? What's going to stop the way of the world? Well, it's the other option. It's the way of Christ. The other way we remember and forgive, remember to forgive is the way of Christ. Choose to imitate the way of Christ. And it's a passage that I, I think is important for us to understand as we look at um, the way of Christ. And that's 1 Peter chapter 2. Familiar to many of you. And, and as Peter writes this, he's writing into a context where people are suffering for their faith. They're being mistreated for their faith. They're being despised for their faith. They're being looked down on because of their faith, right? They're being taken advantage of because of their faith. The rulers who are in charge hate them because of their faith. They're being imprisoned because of their faith. Some are losing their life because of their faith. And and so Peter holds up for us this example of Christ. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example you should follow in his footsteps. When he was sinned against, when he was abused, when he was beaten, when he was scorned, when he was ridiculed, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, did he hurl them back? No. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered... Did he threaten them? Right When Jesus was, was being abused, when he was being beaten, when he was being nailed to the cross, at any time he could have called down 12 legions of angels to come down and destroy everybody who was his enemy. No. He made no threats. What did he do? He entrusted himself to him who just, judgely, justice, uh, judges justly. Right When people sin against us, our first thought is not forgiveness. When people abuse us, our first thought isn't, let me think how I can love that person. No, we want to retaliate. We want to go the way of the world. We want eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But what did Jesus do? No, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, They don't know what they're doing. Father, their eyes are blinded by the God of this world. Father, they're dead and their trespasses and sins. They have no idea what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And how was that forgiveness given? 
He himself bore our sins, right? We're of those who would have cast dispersions upon Christ. We would have ridiculed him. We would have mocked him. We would have scorned him. Jesus, instead of retaliating, he bore the sins of those who were crucifying him on himself, in his body on the cross, so that they might have life. How? They might die to those sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Father, this has to stop someplace. Father, this ends here. I will not return evil for evil. I will offer forgiveness. I choose to forgive. That's the example of Christ. So forgiveness imitates Christ's example. And lastly, forgiveness is only possible by God's grace. Forgiveness is extended to us through grace, and the extended and the grace that we're called, or the forgiveness that we're offered, a call to offer, is only possible through grace. When Jesus says we're to pray, "Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts, debtors," it is grace in the beginning, it's grace in the middle, it's grace in the end. It's all grace. It's all God's power. Forgiveness is always a work of God. Forgiveness is only possible through God's grace. To illustrate this, I want to talk about somebody named Corey Tinboom. Some of you may be familiar with Corey Tinboom. Uh, there was a book called The Hiding Place. Corey Tinboom um, was a Dutch watchmaker. She grew up in a family of watchmakers. They lived above the watch shop and uh, her brother was a, a, a Dutch Reformed theologian, a pastor, and uh, prior to World War II, uh, she had made it her purpose to take care of people who were disabled, the, the less fortunate, and, and specifically, for whatever reason, God gave her a heart for Jewish people, okay? And when the war began, and it became clear that Hitler had offered his final solution, that of genocide— Legit, this was real genocide, not the genocide people talk about today. They were trying to wipe out an entire race of people, the Jews. And so she began to take Jewish refugees into her house, and they would hide them. Well, four years into the war, somebody gave her up. An informant told the Nazis that she was hiding people in her house. And she and her sister and her father were taken to a concentration camp. Ravens, well, it, the Ravensbrück concentration camp was an all-female concentration camp. Her father was separated from her. Well, towards the end of the war, um, Corey Timbin was released. And it was found out that it was a clerical error because she wasn't supposed to be released. And everybody who wasn't released on that day was put into a gas chamber the next day. So she survived because of God's grace. Her father died in a concentration camp as well. Well, after the war, Corey Timboom would travel around talking about her experience in the concentration camp, talking about her experience in hiding Jews, trying to protect them from the Nazis. And she was in a church one time, and she uh, began to speak. And she relates what happens as she was speaking in this church she says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. 
the former Nazi man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of her actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. The man came up to me as the church service was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that you, as you say, he has washed away at my sins. This former Nazi guard thrust his hand out to shake mine, she said. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled up through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Corey says, I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I reached out and took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that had almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges on, but on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. She says, I can't do it. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient, Corey. My power is perfected in your weakness. You can forgive in my power. Friends, anytime you extend forgiveness to somebody who has wronged you painfully, it is only God's grace that is sufficient for you to forgive that person in the way that God has forgiven you. Jai Packer wrote a poem addressing this very topic, this very verse. Forgive our sins as we forgive. You taught us, O Lord, to pray. But you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. How can your pardon reach and bless the unforgiving heart that broods on wrongs and will not let old bitterness depart? In blazing light, your cross reveals the truth we dimly knew. How small the debts Men owe to us how great our debt to you. Lord, cleanse the depths within our souls and bid resistment, resist, resentment cease. Then reconcile to God and man. Our lives will spread your peace. And so Jesus says to us, for our good and for the good of the world around us, pray this, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Amen. All right. So I think the song we're going to sing is, Lord, I need you. And it could be there's somebody in your life uh, and you're harboring bitterness in your heart because of that person. And God wants to bless you. He wants to grace you with forgiveness towards that person. You simply need to ask him for that grace. And then you have to make the decision that you're going to forgive them. Perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe you've never experienced the saving grace 
of God through Jesus Christ and had your debt removed, that debt that stands between you and God. Maybe you need to pray that this morning. In any case, it's all of God's grace. So as we sing, Lord, I need you, think, Lord, I need you. I need your grace. I need the forgiveness that only you can give me. Let's pray. Father, we thank